Hi, everyone. I'm Allison. And I'm Mark. And welcome to Renowned Podcast. This is our very first episode. So what we're going to do is we are going to use a random word generator, literally something I found on the web. And we're going to have that return for us a noun. So each week we will start the show with the noun that we were given the week before. But of course, as today is our very first episode, you will see Allison and I do it live right now. And then we'll just magically cut. And the rest of the episode, a week will have passed. This week uh, is unique in that Allison and I are here recording this. And we're going to just look at this word now, see what we get. And then this episode will continue because it's the first episode. But Allison and I will break for a week. So in a couple minutes when you see us again here, uh, it will have been a week's time for us, but, but certainly not for you. All right. I think with all that said, with you know further ado here, we'll we'll see what the fates have in mind for our very first research week. So let me go over here. Very excited and very nervous at the same time. I know. Uh, what are we going to get? So let's do a three, two, one. Orbit. Ah. O r b i t. Orbit. I like that, Mark. It sounds like we're in an elementary school spelling bee. Oh, no. <laughs> um, Can you use it in a sentence? <laughs> uh, well, probably many sentences, which oh will be gosh. the continuation of this episode. So as Mark laid out for the format, um, this is, you know, our initial rating. Just I hear this word rating one to 10, one being the lowest, 10 being the highest. How am I feeling about this word? Am I excited to dig into this? Am I kind of like, eh, sounds pretty mundane to me. We'll see what we can dig up. I got to say, I'm pretty excited about orbit. Um, I have a very special place in my heart for astrophysics. Let me be very clear. I <laughs> just really bad at math and don't necessarily understand all the science that goes into it, but I'm very fascinated um, by space exploration and by the two competing theories of physics. So orbit to me gets to be pretty excited thinking about all of the things happening in that space right now and all of the things that can happen in that space. So I don't want to get too overly excited, but I will say on a one to 10 with orbit, I got to give, I got to give it like a seven and a half. I want to go eight, but I don't want to get too excited. So we're going to go with seven yeah, and nice. a half. I thought you might go eight or even nine. Yeah. The second yeah. it popped up, I'm like, Ooh, Allison's going to love this one. I know, um, but I've got to rein it in. So yeah, no, 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 it's good. And, and audience, just so you know, like this gut reaction, this rating, you'll see us come and visit this. So Allison just gave this like a 7.5, I think you said, right? Um, we'll come back after we've researched at the rest of the, the end of this episode. Uh, it'll have been a week for us. I know I keep saying that, but um, we'll then after our whole conversation kind of rate it again. Because I think what we'll find and hopefully what you find is our gut reaction to a word may be very different after we you know, research for a bit. We may take something that we thought we'd have no interest in and find some fascinating connection for us in how it pertains to the world. So that's sort of our a part of our cycle too in our in our format. So so then I'll go. Uh, my gut reaction. How do I want to rate this? Very similar to Allison. I was like, ooh, that's cool. There's so much going on right now with NASA and the deep space images and, and everything else. Not that that's an orbit. Actually, it's not an orbit, but um I too am excited. And I'll I'll share. I don't know if if I'm going to do this, but part of my joy of words is like the etymology of, of this might be that I find that there's something about orbit that predates our 
space understanding of orbit to see if it comes from something else, social orbits, or where like the, the background is. So I don't know. I'll, I'll see where I take it. Um, I'm going to go with, I'm going to go with seven, two. You were seven and a half? Yeah, I'm going to go with seven. I think this is a good one. All right. You know, I like it could have been, it could have been like mud or something. And like, as we joked about, like just do mud, but I'm sure that even that would be fascinating. If we, we get Actually, down I mean, yeah, we, we, as Mark said, we, we did uh, use it as one of our examples. I think when we were testing the word generator uh, several weeks ago and I thought, well, primordial ooze, I mean, that's right. pretty interesting. The beginning of life, what's going on right now? Like looking for life on Mars or the moon where there's evidence of water, right? So you see how this starts uh, to bring us down the rabbit hole. So seven and seven and a half, pretty close. I'm really excited to see after a week, uh, a week for us, uh, hour, hour and a half for you guys watching, um, you know, if we come back to that same rating. Um, so I think it's, um, thanks so much for joining us. We're really excited to start this journey um, with all of you. And as Mark said, we'd love any feedback you have. So please uh, feel free to get in touch with us. And with that, Mark, is there anything else? Yeah, no, I think that's it, folks. You could just continue to watch. I'll probably just dim the screen to black. Uh, and again, when you see us here in another 10 seconds, a week will have passed for us, uh, but for you, just moments. So we'll talk to you in a moment. Welcome back, everyone. It's been just a few seconds for you, but it has been a week for Mark and myself uh, researching the word orbit. So we're going to jump right in unless there's anything you want to say, Mark. No, I'm, I'm excited to, uh, to, to jump in and do this. It was, uh, it was a good week, but we'll, we'll talk about that after. Let's, let's tackle orbit here. Excellent. So what we're going to do to determine who goes first each week is roll a die. So Mark, I will have to have a little of the honor system here, right? But let's both roll. Oh, I got a lowly two. I got a one. So you, <laughs> you won. So everybody, the rule is highest goes first. Uh, that's hilarious. All right. So I go first. I'm going to so, take that not as a sign that we have the barest minimum understanding of orbit after our research. I'd like to think amazing. it's more than that. But it's, oh my it's, a, God. A, it's a scary omen. One and two. Okay. Putting that aside. I was going to say the universe is like, ugh. Like, ugh. see your research and. Uh, yeah. All right. Go ahead. Sorry. You, okay. you won that. So dig in. Oh, oh, I have oh. to time you. So <laughs> you everybody, as me. a reminder, this is our. <laughs> our quick hit. So because we're wordy people, nerds, proudly, proud nerds, um, I'm sure we have prepared statements that strain our 15 second limitation. I I absolutely recorded mine and timed it. Um, not recorded it, but I timed it. And I, I think I'm straining mine. Anyway. Okay. Allison, you go first. 15 seconds on the clock. Orbit is what? Go. So I unexpectedly went down a literature and film rabbit hole with this one, which then led me in two other directions. So our social orbits and the importance of connection to the human species and separately the interplay between science and art. Boom. You stopped with seconds to spare. You're at about 13 and a half seconds. Uh, look at that. Nice. So science and art. Interesting. Okay. Um, All right, Mark. So hold on here. I am going to use the stopwatch and I will count you down. Okay. Three, two, one, go. 
An orbit is the path of an object's movement through space, accounting for how that object is affected by other objects. The path is always elliptical, unless considering the orbits of quantum particles. Humankind's quest through history to explain the orbits of the planets laid the foundation for modern science. Sorry, but we should get an actual buzzer. Otherwise, you're going to always have to hear me do that. And oh, maybe I'll edit that in afterwards for fun. <laughs> Do you want to do you want to just restate that last sentence since I so rudely oh, buzzed you? Yes, uh, humankind's quest through history to explain the orbits of the planets laid the foundation for modern science. Mm, all right. So a couple things. Um, uh, thoughts. Yeah, I mean, as this is the first time that it's going to be a lot of exciting, like you know, compare and contrast types of things. I I feel like the straight little dork who is like like giving a definition, but then saying how that definition could be expanded and everything else. I love that you had this like more felt like you're going to go, well, I'll find out here in a minute. But like you said, like film and art and representation of orbits used in a, in a less book sense, <laughs> less like straight definition and scientific sense. Am I right Let's, there? Or, um, yes and no. It's interesting that you said book. I'll leave it. I'll leave it at that for the moment. I, I love your direction. Um, I, I do, because that is just the little geek in me was so excited, as you'll recall from several minutes ago, listeners, uh, that when we got orbit, right, that, yep. um, you know, thinking about all the stuff going on in the science space. And while I didn't go in that direction, I'm really excited you did so that we can talk about it. Nice. Uh, so should we jump in to the zoom out? Yeah, absolutely. So everyone, again, well, just because this is the first time the zoom out, we're going to just literally zoom out. You saw us try to concentrate where we focused in our research for the past week uh, down to a 15 second little seed, a core. Um, one might almost say a center of mass that creates oh orbits. Oh, my goodness. Um <laughs> Um, so now we'll, we'll, we'll blow things out, zoom out into, uh, other relevance, uh, and, and broader connections. So Allison, you won this dice toss today. So take it away. Okay. So, um, dear listeners, you don't know us yet. Um, but if you did know me, you would be pretty certain. I think we've alluded to this, um, that I was going to just go on nonstop and not shut up about the James Webb telescope and the recent first images for this entire episode when we got orbit. That just seemed too easy. So uh, I started poking around and exploring some different avenues. And lo and behold, I came across a short film from 2019 called Orbit. So after looking down a few other avenues, I thought, well, this seems interesting. So you can see it on YouTube. It's about 20 minutes long. I'm not going to tell you to go put it at the top of your next movie to watch list, but if you are an Edgar Allan Poe fan, you might want to, because I started mm -hmm. watching it and thought very quickly, uh, why does this feel familiar? It's a sci-fi take on Edgar Allan Poe's The Telltale Heart. So you combine great literature and sci-fi and I am there for it, right? So then at that moment I went, yep, this is the avenue I'm going down, even though I had a few other ideas kind of in my mind. Nice. So, yep, so super exciting, right? Poe, a master. So for those of you who've never read The Telltale Heart or just need a refresher from middle school English, 
uh, Poe wrote this story in 1843, and it's told in the first person. And the narrator, uh, the gender is never defined. So we don't know male, female. So I'm going to say they. Uh, so the the narrator spends the story trying to convince the reader that they are sane, while at the same time detailing a murder they have committed with very little provocation. It's a very interesting story. Um, and subsequently, said narrator who has buried the body under the house can hear with growing urgency and volume the beating heart of the murder victim. So there's a lot of things we could talk about there. But um, in the film, two men are alone on a spacecraft orbiting a planet and one, you know, murders the other. And the younger man murders the older man because the older man's pale blue eye of a vulture is driving him to distraction. They use direct lines from the story. This is not like a subtle remake of, they are saying lines from the story and that is one of them. Aside, I had forgotten the eye part completely from the story and immediately thought, oh my God, Orbital Ridge. This is another avenue to pursue. I reined myself in. Um, but before I dive a little deeper here of where this took me, Mark, do you remember reading the Telltale? Did you read the Telltale Heart when you were in middle school? I don't know because I'm not remembering the, the history of it. I had a, I went through this, period in like junior high school of buying like the big Shakespeare, the big, um, you know, collection of, of, of all the greats. And I, I think the one that I ended up knowing the best of course was like, you know, nevermore and things like that. Cause in school, everybody, I studied, um, acting and directing at NYU, we had to do a puppet theater presentation. And so we did one of nevermore and like actually how you brought that mood to life, the Raven, how the Raven could be represented in like darkness and everything else, but that is not the telltale heart. So yeah, I, I never did. So I'm going to love learning more about like this whole, this whole thing. This is great. Um, yeah. And I think we will of course link in our show notes, uh, all sorts of things, uh, including links to this movie and, uh, the story and all of those things. What, and forgive me, Allison, if you know, at the top of, um, your head here, it was how recent was this film? Uh, 29. I want to say 2019. Let me see. Oh, if but I made so like in the there. last few years, got it. It wasn't like, yeah, yeah. Cool. Very, cool. very recent. Uh, yeah. 2019. Nice. Um, so, okay. So, so there's the basis and, and this got me thinking about a few things. Um, so the sci-fi direction that I took, I think makes sense in general, right? Cause sci-fi tends to have a lot of orbiting things, planets, moons, spacecraft, satellites, all of that. But with the short itself, after I watched it, I was thinking about how in art, art is often recreating or trying to re-represent things. And in this case, the directors wanted to create an homage to Poe's classic tale. Um, and interestingly, Poe's been called one of the earliest sci-fi authors because he did sometimes in his stories incorporate themes of space, time travel, science, uh, mesmerism, and all of that kind of naturally came from his time. So in the early 19th century, scientific discovery was skyrocketing, definitely pun intended. Um, I mean, so many things were happening in that space, like theory of electromagnetism was being developed. Atomic theory was developed by John Dalton. Um, Ohm's law came into space. Vitalism was refuted because they were able to synthesize urea. Um, Michael Faraday and others uh, figured out how to alloy iron 
to stop oxidization, which, which has like massive implications on so many things that we take for granted today. So that was all happening around Poe and he was working these things into some of his stories. But as much as he incorporated these themes, it turns out he had a pretty ambivalent stance towards science. So he was all very interested in it, but he was healthily skeptical. And he actually, I had no idea until this week, he wrote a poem called To Science. And he's basically arguing in this poem that science is the enemy of the poet because it takes away the mysteries of the world. And one of the lines from this poem is, why prayest thou thus upon the poet's heart vulture whose wings are dull realities? Uh, quick aside here, 14 years later, when he writes the telltale heart, he describes the cloudy eye of the murderee as the eye of a vulture. I don't think he was writing an allegory about murdering science, but I just thought this was an interesting tie-in. So his main concern was actually that science sacrificed creativity, where what he believed true science should do is require like intuitive imagination. So he was really like torn between these two things. So to recap, a movie short called Orbit, it's created as a remake, an homage really, to Poe's Telltale Heart, Poe and called one of the earliest science fiction writers. So this is kind of fitting, but he struggled with that interplay between science and art. Um, and yet this sci-fi short is art. So we've kind of come full circle, right? We've gone all the way around, just like an orbit. And then I will add to this that I watched a second film called Orbiter Nine. It's a Spanish film from 2017. And it's about a woman alone on a spaceship who's had no human contact until an engineer has to come dock. Um, again, I'm not going to recommend that you add it to the top of your list, but if you are a sci-fi fan, it does add something new, I think, to the whole sci-fi catalog. I, you know, I definitely would would watch it if, if, if you are a fan. Um, but the movie opens with shots of her doing everything alone. She's living alone um, on this on this ship. And I just made me immensely sad starting to think about that level of loneliness and how as human beings, we are biologically wired to need interaction um, as a species. It, it, it's so critical to us that solitary confinement is used as a punish, punishment, I believe in all cultures. Um, I couldn't quite do all the research, but I believe in all cultures. Um, and before the formal penal systems were developed in most cultures, banishment was used as a punishment for the most serious of crimes and was, was often a death sentence. So that is how like critical interaction is to us. And here this movie starts by focusing on this woman, young woman who's been alone. Um, it's so critical that we're connected that I read an article a number of years ago in Nat, National Geographic on brain development. And it turns out our brains aren't fully developed until our 20s. And any of you who have teenagers, I'm sure know this, like their risk reward system isn't there yet. So they make decisions that you just cannot contemplate how, how they're doing it. Mark and I do not have teenagers, but I think we know enough teenagers uh, that that this makes sense. And, you know, you, if you have a teenager who has fallen out with their clique of friends, they will act like it is the end of the world. Um, that is because, argues this article, that their brain is telling them it is the end of the world. We are biologically wired to need that. So they're not just overreacting and being angsty teens. Um, their brain is telling them that this is something that's critical to survival. Anyway, this woman, you know, meets an engineer and is of course desperate for connection. I am not gonna spoil anything here. There are some twists in this movie that were quite interesting. Um, and he also has a small robot and she ends up talking to it. 
And she understands it's not human. She just, she's that desperate. And for me, that made this perfect connection to everything I was just talking about, the science and art piece, because it's, you know, science and desperation as human beings. Now there is this scientifically created robot, um, but she needs to use her imagination to try to interact with it. So it's those two pieces coming together. So that was a very long little windy rabbit hole, but I will stop there and and uh, see what you think, Mark. No, I, I think it's fascinating that... Um the curtailing of a social orbit like would have such detrimental effect and that it seems like what you've exposed you to you expose yourself to in these films is a bit of an exploration of that right like you mentioned um solitary confinement and why that is so awful but also probably therefore why it's used um and when i was starting to think about the research it crossed my mind. Yeah. The different uses of the word orbit. And we talk about social orbits and if people are, if someone's in your orbit, it almost makes me think more of like, um, Victorian times where it was something around like how structured family events were. And if someone was in your orbit, it really meant something about the social circles you traveled in anyway, uh, down my own rabbit hole there. But I know I like the color and the, the different angle you took to it, which is, which is pretty cool. I might have to check those out. Um, for sure. Yeah, I think you in particular would would enjoy these, knowing your film tastes. Um, so let's take it more sciencey. Why don't you share? Yeah, your yeah, with us? A, a little bit. It's funny that you mentioned the the orbit of the eye. I think in some of the Telter Heart stuff you were talking about, right? Yeah. Um, I think it's interesting that I I started a little bit there in terms of I, I love the history of where words come from and so on and for me, it, it, it becomes, it, it always runs into obviously Greek, Mesopotamian, like the history of where our concepts of certain phrases and things came from. Why were we, were we talking about orbits in ancient times? And what did we mean? <laughs> like, because we're coming into it, I'm going to be very honest, audience. I, I love this process already because it's almost embarrassing how much I don't know. But then that becomes something is so celebrated in science that the more you, the more you research and learn, the more you realize, oh, there's much more to that rabbit hole to go down. Um, so I started with, you know, looking at the word orbit. And of course, it says in the late 14th uh, century, that was related to the eye socket and the, you know, the round um socket of the eye, which makes sense because around that time, it's going to be something physically so available to us to, to think of. But then I started thinking, well, is that coming from what? Is it round because that's what they called the eye socket or was it round because it represented something else? And so looking back, you get all the way back to the Latin word orbita, which actually meant a wheel track uh, or the beaten path or a rut or a, in, in mud from a wheel. So that for me, it was fascinating too. like the, that you go back farther and you get something that's actually closer to our understanding of an orbit in astronomy, which is actually a path through space. It was a path in mud left by a circular object, a wheel, but it was really the path, not the thing. Does, is that like completely odd? Like that blew my mind for some reason, which is, yeah, showing my nerd background, but I was like, oh, that's, that's pretty cool. Um, and then nobody knows where that came from. You kind of run up against that as like the beginning of that 
concept. Uh, Orbita, nobody knows where it came from before that, apparently. Anyway, that got me thinking. And so I, yes, to your point, went full, you know, exploration of, all right, orbits. When did we consider something being or having an orbit? When, when was this being talked about? And so for me, that ended up going all the way back to the ancient Greeks. But it also led me to realize through my research that what happens, I think, so much in our Western education system is we talk about the Greeks. <laughs> However, the Greeks captured through their writing system and through just the course of time that their works survived, they pulled from Mesopotamian work, um, uh, just you know, Egyptian work, the, the, that whole other sort of fertile crescent area that they were pulling from. So I just wanted to shout that out, right? It's you know, we don't say, oh, the Greeks started it all. Well, they were also standing on the shoulders of of previous giants themselves, I think. Um, so what I found fascinating um, was that this whole process for me brought the timeline of the evolution of what an orbit is through and, and organized it for me. I think before this week, I probably would just very vaguely be like, I think Kepler did some stuff <laughs> and oh, right. Galileo, everybody knows him, not just from the song, but because this was telescope and somewhere in the 1600s and yeah, he was persecuted, but I can't remember if he recanted it. Like I, I would have just been like, oh, and then Newton came along and everything was fine. Like it'd be so broad and that's embarrassing almost in a way, right. To like say that, but, um, hopefully I'm not alone there. Right. That we, we have these like, like general backgrounds with them. We're like, Oh wait. So I loved sitting down. I love that we're doing this. Um, I'm excited even just for this first week. So, all right, not to go too far, but what I have here in my notes, right. Is to just sort of sketch out and this can be good for me to try to encapsulate it in an arc rather than, um, you know, just, just detailing it. So picture ancient civilizations look up, looking up and realizing, okay, the stars in their pattern are pretty uniform and set, but the planets were weirdos and planets were moving in this spiral that almost wound and then unwound itself. Whereas the stars were behaving very differently and, and much more I don't know, they're sort of much more understood or, or not, not static. We know they move, but they were not erratic in their movement. So it felt like if you're in that time period, you could picture them being on this sphere that was somehow rotating or moving around you, right? The ancient Greeks literally pictured it on another, like we were on a, oddly, they knew the world was round um, and that they were on like another sphere out in space. So when things were moving in this uniform way, it made sense to them but the planets were confounding. And so that was like the seed of this huge, you know, from there through to Newton, through honestly to Einstein of understanding what the hell is going on with the planets and therefore orbits and therefore all of it, right? So I'll pause there just as a dork to say, throughout this whole process, I got like kind of emotional in how amazing the human spirit is to keep looking at things and saying why you know what i mean like i just think it's 
a testament to, you know, that it sounds schlocky, but like the human spirit to be like, well, why? Because I, I think there were, and I'm not saying that was everybody, right? It wasn't all of the Greeks doing this. There are people out in the fields defending, doing their thing, surviving, doing what they can. But just to not be there and be like, sure, they're weird, but who cares, right? Those planets are odd. But to keep having it almost gnaw away at human curiosity and consciousness until over... It's like this baton pass from one person to the next over so many years. So I really appreciating this after my, my whole journey. Um, the hits of this, right? Um, fails of Miletus. We're talking about 600 before the common era. Uh, was just movement in the heavenly bodies, right? That, that the planets were different, that the, there were bodies out there. It was Pythagoras though, 525 BCE, who actually said the earth is a sphere. Pause there again. Like, I don't know, else maybe like you, we grew up being like in 1492, Columbus sailing proved it and everybody thought the world was flat. And now I think there were plenty of people who did still in 1492. Well, sadly, there still are, right? right. Well, yeah, right. Sadly, exactly. Um, thank you for bringing that up. Um, but it is so... I didn't know, and maybe everyone else knew this. I think I knew in general that maybe some of the Greeks thought that, but not the Pythagoras, like one of the stars that everybody knows from like high school math, um, knew that, right? And or postulated that, and, and then that was kind of accepted. So that's kind of fascinating. Um, but then take standing on Pythagoras, you had Aristotle come in. There was some discussion around the geocentric versus heliocentric debate. And so for me, that kind of became the heart of where I went with this, which is not a surprise because it triggers the intense debate of what that means for religion versus science. And like the two tracks that we take from this time period around the beginning of the common era through to the 1600s, 1700s, right? This, this massive exchange. And I learned a lot. I thought it was the classic big, bad, awful church, because I'm a raging atheist, um, against right, holding back science and, 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 um, and the progress. But I found out that it's, it's a bit more complicated than that. Um, so fast forwarding ahead, right? You have Aristotle um, established geocentrism. Ptolemy, uh, Ptolemy, I should say, in, 50, in 150 common era writes, um, a, a massive treatise on on physics and the movement of the spheres, which really kind of solidifies geocentrism again. And that sort of stands, but it's so complicated. The more that they tried to explain these aberrations and this erratic movement, you know, they were very, very well informed. They were able to like, you know, try to estimate the size of things and so on, but they could, they kept having observations of the natural world that weren't you know, making sense. So they kept getting more and more complex. So picture, right. You probably remember the spheres we all see with the earth in the middle um, and the sun going around it. Well, Ptolemy has not only a planet circling the earth, but also circling in its own circle and then others circling around that. And it's just this crazy mass of circles. <laughs> And so you get to uh, Nicolaus Copernicus, it, Polish, 1473. It stands for that long. This insane, like, overly complicated 
geocentric model stands from fifth from 150 common era to 1540 or so, which is astounding kind of unto itself. But of course we had the dark ages and everything else. Um, so Copernicus thinks that this is sort of unacceptable, that, that nature can't be that erratic. He was actually very, he was a religious person. Um, he just thought he was such a conservative in how nature should behave that it was just too crazy to have all these circles basically. <laughs> uh, and so he, he, you know, posits that for the first time, like someone tried to back in Aristotle's time say, no, I think the sun is probably in the center, but Aristotle basically just dismissed it because it was too revolutionary. It went counter to a lot of the thinking that, you know, we were the center of everything. Um, but oddly, there was also a question of the size of the stars, right? They weren't, they didn't have Galileo's telescope yet. They were doing a lot of math to, 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 to do the size of stars versus the earth. But um, if Copernicus was right, it wasn't just that we weren't at the center. It did things to the size of stars as they were understood and the dist or the distance of stars which I thought was fascinating. I always think it's like this reversal of if we're in the center or not, like almost like a, a weird human ego thing. It was actually not just frowned upon by the church for being a sort of tumultuous upheaval of, of church doctrines. But even uh, I looked into it, I never realized uh, Tycho Brahe, Danish astronomer, kind of the superstar in Europe, astronomer at Copernicus's time, respected Copernicus's thoughts on it, but didn't buy it because he thought it would mean the stars were so far away. And that's ridiculous. Like it, it just didn't stand up. Uh, just a side note, he was actually just, uh, Brahe was a, I didn't know that's how you pronounced it. So thank you. Uh, an answer to Tico, New York Times Tico. crossword puzzle clue this week. Oh. Nice. Oh, excellent. Did I say Tico? Because I had to look it up. And yeah, like. Oh, no. Uh, Brahe. Tico Brahe. Yep. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, I wanted to say Tycho, but uh, that was one of the first things I learned was Tico. Tico Brahe. Um, so he had a very well-reasoned and and I love reading about him because it wasn't this, you know, I feel like in our modern era, especially now, given geopolitics, it feels like this fierce, everybody will hate someone else's debate or agreement. He just felt very passionately that Copernicus was making, you know, either stars wildly massive or very far away, et cetera, et cetera. So he actually, and I never knew this existed. I feel like it was always geocentrism or heliocentrism. He posited a combination of the two, which he called like geoheliocentrism. And it was interesting. He had the all the other planets other than earth orbiting the sun, but then the sun orbiting the earth, <laughs> right? You can picture that. So I the earth cannot. is there with our moon and the sun is orbiting uh, us. And we're all going around. But everything else is orbiting the sun. So the sun's going around, all the other planets are going around the sun and then just the sun's orbiting us and the moon. So we're very for important. him, exactly. For him though, that again, um, you know, if the audience wants to, delve into this, brought things together. Um, I know I'm going like way long. The The only other thing that I want to bring up, I'll touch on this, is a, a massive uh, topic unto itself, but the whole church side of this, right? Uh, 
So that was like the scientific, I'd say like um, hesitance and, and, and disagreement with him, which was actually well thought through and grounded in scientific thought at the time with Tico and everyone that was following him. So it wasn't like Copernicus, like necessarily had a breakthrough in all science. It was like, yes. Um, but from a, a fascinating, I think, religious standpoint, we, I think we all may know in some ways that Galileo, uh, was, in, uh, put on trial, had to sort of recount. So on his belief. Um, so he, for folks who don't know, I had to remind myself, he basically witnessed through his telescope moons around Jupiter. And so once you had proof that something was circling, circling something other than the earth, you basically shifted the earth from being the focus of, of everything, right? It's like, oh, other heavenly bodies are, are centering around other things. We are not the only thing tying all of this heavenly movement together. Um, he was on trial, did not die. You know, as we know, he um, was not put to death. What's fascinating, though, for two reasons, is this guy named Giordano Bruno, an Italian, lived from 1548 to 1600. He became sort of ravenously an advocate for Copernicus's geo, um, sorry, heliocentric model. But he, as opposed to, say, Galileo or Tycho, was kind of more of a wild philosopher and had political aspirations for what he wanted to do. And, and there was so much going on with like the Reformation and sort of the, the Inquisition was spreading across Europe. So really Copernicus was at the end of like this freedom to have his theory published. And then everything kind of started to get washed under the Inquisition. It was kind of wild. Um, but Bruno basically took it farther. And although he was sort of this crazy historical figure, he actually posited that now we know if the earth is revolving around the sun, then that continues and the sun must be revolving around something else, et cetera, et cetera. And I didn't know this. I had to, to look it up and, and realize that just continues to literally the edge of human knowledge right now. We know that our sun is um, revolving and orbiting around um, a, a black hole in the middle of the Milky Way. And then if I'm going to get this right, the Milky Way is revolving around um, the center of gravity of a group of galaxies. And if you go out from there, the galaxies are forming on threads of dark matter at the very edge of like known anything. Um, so Giordano Bruno, who was imprisoned for eight years for his support of Copernicus and then burned at the stake, uh, turns out to be, yes, a sort of erratic kind of crazy guy, uh, but actually nails the, you know, the, uh, I don't know how to put it, the, the puzzle within the puzzle within the puzzle of known space and, and how there really isn't a center to anything. Um, so yeah, I, I'll wrap that up with just, you know, after that, you basically have these things hanging in the air until you've got Kepler comes in. He was a student of Tycho Brahe. So even though Tycho didn't agree with Copernicus, uh, Johannes Kepler defended and validated Copernicus. Uh, and also finally was the first time I didn't bring this up the whole time. All of this thinking was in circles. So 
Johannes Kepler said these are elliptical orbits. Um, and then all of this as to why goes to Sir Isaac Newton having his three laws of motion, where you finally understand a gravitational force and why these things are circling around each other. And then fast forward that to what I just learned today when I brushed up on relativity theory is nothing's just oddly attracted to each other. Four-dimensional space is curved and things are actually in a way rolling towards each other. There is no odd attraction between objects. An object, the sun is warping time space. And in a way, the earth is constantly just rolling downhill in four dimensions. Sorry, that's my rabbit hole. <laughs> that is an amazing rabbit hole. I, I have all these comments I want to make. I think maybe in sorry, the future, yeah. I'll like, I'll like jump in because now some oh, of them you're sorry. Yeah, you're, I was just like rambling. I don't on. want you to be sorry. I, I didn't want to like, I don't want to mess with that flow. But some of my comments like go back to what you, you said no, no, a while we, ago. We can go back. But like talking about the origin of the word itself is so fascinating when you were talking about how it's actually kind of meant like the rut of, of a wheel, you know, part of me was going, oh, of course it did. I mean, not necessarily of a wheel, but of course it was about something round or the toll doing so. I, you know, it just, it, my brain never would have kind of thought that before. The other thing I just thought I'd share with folks, um, if you haven't been to Pompeii in Italy, I, it is mind blowing um, and I highly recommend it. But I thought one of the um, coolest things when I was there several years ago is there are still wheel ruts in the road that were made by carts from way back then that have been preserved. And it's something as little as that, that really makes you feel like mind, you know, mind blown and connected to the place. Um, interestingly, Pompeii, it was, it was a center of commerce for the region. So merchants and farmers were coming there to sell their wares often. And there was a standard across the region and um, a standard wheel width on carts and in Pompeii, in any city back then, once the ruts kind of were formed in the street, well, you know, that's what they were. And they changed the width so that farmers and merchants who came to town would have to rent, would have to pay to rent a special cart to get in. So kind of greed and commerce at its best, even way back then. I think we can think about how things don't change. I also very much appreciated your shout out to the Fertile Crescent because it just made me feel like, you know, sixth grade social studies all over again. Um, <laughs> And I think so much of what you said too, some of it connected actually, even though we took such different tracks to what I was talking about. Like, and some of this I think will come up in my big question uh, when we get to that in a minute, but the whole, the why of the human spirit. And I think that in sci-fi movies and books, you see that a lot, right? That tends to be an underpinning theme of like the human race, you know, striving to understand more. It's what it's what still to this day is driving NASA, in fact. Um, and then religion versus science, which it, it, quite frankly is still a war um, that's going on. Uh, you also look at art versus science, right? So you and I were looking at science as something that also, you know, has provided and given us all these amazing things, all this amazing knowledge also continues to not necessarily sit comfortably um, in the human experience, which I think is, is really, really um, interesting. And then, um, I'll save one other thing to to tie it in with my big question, but wait, uh, let me jump. Just yeah, finish no. that thought before you leave the um, science versus the church. Just even in my research, when I found some of my research came from Scientific American, 
Um, and folks will, will post, um, I have like a work cited, I think Allison probably does too. We'll, we'll post those in the show notes, uh, and also on the website. Um, so you can check that, uh, check out these things, you know, check our research or, or delve deeper yourself. But it was interesting that when I found an article called <clears throat> the case against Copernicus, I think that's the name of it. Uh, I might be butchering the name, but again, it'll be in the show notes, everyone. It was the story of Tycho Brahe's very thoughtful disagreement with Copernicus, which was meant to sort of show the other side of which, what I thought it wasn't just like everybody thought this was the right way. And it was the church being like, no, um, that was still happening. But even after they published that, another thing I found was uh, someone wrote in, um, I might probably quote some of it in the episode notes as well. I want to find this guy because he seems like he'd be uh, a good guy to know. He just agreed, but he also wanted everybody to know, like, don't discount how horrifying the Inquisition's impact was on scientific thought. I think we all know that, right? Like, I mean, people were burned at the stake. Poor Giordano was, you know, at the stake for this. Um, so, so even now, even when we thoughtfully balance out the equation, so to speak, uh -huh, um, with like this story of Tico, you're right that we shouldn't lose sight of it. It's just constantly um, this give and take. And other articles I found were, were trying, were from like the seventies, which were trying to like, say, are we sliding back into like a modern inquisition? Now this was 1973 and they were calling out Nixon. They were calling out the treatment of nuclear physicists by the USSR who were suddenly being like, because they were disagreeing with the, the government their whole lives are being torn apart. So it's, it's just fascinating that you, you underscore that because yeah, it's still happening. And I don't know, unfortunately, if it ever will go away, but. Yeah, no, actually, first of all, I want to say that I love that after your week of research, you seem to be on a first name basis with all of these famous scientists, <laughs> like Giordano and Tico, you know, <laughs> my boys, my buds. Um, uh, that that's actually perfect that you brought that up because, and, and that you, you know, did, did a call out to some of these guys, uh, because one thing I was just going to share, not, not this week, not for this, but, uh, sometime in the past year, I watched, uh, all of Neil deGrasse Tyson's, uh, Cosmos and it, it's a, it's an update like so much, right. Another remake of Sagan's, uh, Cosmos from, I'm a child as is Mark of the seventies and eighties, right. So something I used to watch on public television when I was a kid. And I highly recommend it because a lot of the characters that Mark mentions, he has episodes on that go, you know, he, he just scratches the surface because you, you can't do much more in an hour long episode, but you learn a lot more about some of the folks that Mark's talking about and some of the struggles at the time. So highly recommend that. We'll, we'll link that as well in the show notes. Thanks. Did you, um, I know I cut you off to mention the church science debate. Did I cut you off from? No, I was going to go oh, into, I, I was going to go into uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson. So. Oh, perfect. All right. Um, I think we can probably tease up some of our brass tax questions. So folks, this is a section where we try to think through, you know, how it was, what, what, I don't know, provocative questions or thoughts or perspectives. Um, I almost wanted to say bleak questions. Maybe they're bleak. <laughs> Reveal something about my approach to things. Um, <laughs> just, just questions that, you know, going down this rabbit hole for us both uh, brought up. 
So Allison, do you want to share some of yours? Sure. So, you know, thinking about the big questions, you know, big questions often don't have answers. So I don't know what the answer is to these, but, you know, I talked about kind of two different things. I talked about social orbits and how biologically wired we are to need them. And I also talked about the intersection of art and science, and that's where I wrapped everything up. So I really stuck with the intersection of art and science. And so my question is, unsurprisingly, are art and science complementary or at war? You could say the same thing about religion. So you do have prominent religious leaders who rail against science. I, I was going to say, I'm sorry if this offends anybody, but you're not listening to us if this offends you. I mean, you're just, you haven't even found us yet. So uh, there are people who don't believe dinosaurs existed because it doesn't, who truly in this day and age, don't believe that because it doesn't fit in. Uh, but at the same time, you have prominent religious leaders who say science and religion are are hand in hand, you know, to determine the true nature of God and our existence is religion. And I think that, uh, in my opinion, is a much more um, beautiful and comprehensive answer. So, uh, but unfortunately, I think they are, they are still at, at war. Other kind of examples there, I mean, science just creates some of the biggest, think of pictures of fractals that we've seen and our understanding of fractals is completely based on math and science. And they are naturally created some of those beautiful things in the world. Um, you hear numerous scientists talk about how without intuition, you don't get breakthroughs. You can do all the controlled experiments you want, but there needs to be some level of intuition to get there. Um, I believe Einstein had a quote or two on this, but I purposely did not want to quote Einstein because he has been misquoted so much, especially like in the past decade. And I didn't want to even risk, uh, you know, going down, down that rabbit hole. You also have someone, um, some of you may have heard of a man named Edward Tufte, who is still alive. He was a statistician professor at Princeton, professor, professor at Yale. Um, and he wrote three gorgeous books on the visual representation of statistical data. He also is a sculptor. Um, but that idea that like a statistician, a mathematician, a scientist is interested in and focused on how we represent that visually for human beings to best understand it, but also in a way that is beautiful and artistic. So I think there are plenty of examples about how science and art can, can coexist. Um, and finally, we do have Einstein, not going to quote him, like I said, but you do have, um, when we think about Poe talking about science can potentially kill creativity and kill intuition, Einstein talks about spooky action at a distance, right? So in physics, originally the thought was, and Mark, you, you like grazed on this, you touched on this a little bit. And that's why I was like, oh, this really figures into like theories of physics, right? Figure into my big question, this idea of um, quantum mechanics. So the idea that things don't move unless there's a force like gravity acting upon them. But then Einstein and others started to see examples of like things moving and we can't explain why doesn't mean there isn't a why. It means we can't explain it yet. There certainly is. Um, but the idea that something can be moved without being physically touched by another object or another force like gravity um, really then created this problem between the predominating um, theories of physics, right? Between relativity, relativity and quantum mechanics. And they still haven't figured it out. They have plenty of theories, but astrophysicists still haven't figured it out. And to get there, you do have to take a creative leap because nothing we know or have 
can give us the answer to that. So we have to be rethinking things in new ways that we're not gonna get just necessarily from doing the math and the math doesn't get us there. Um, so I do think that science and art um, are connected, but then it brings us to the practical question, um, what should we be funding more? Do we fund NASA or do we fund the National Endowment of the Arts, which is more important for human survival? Um, you know, or are they both really important because there's an interplay? So those are my big questions, Mark. I will first applaud you for bringing those questions up um, and tussling with them. I I sort of immediately. So audience, my background. Um, I'm not going to hold myself up as like a serious artist, but I have spent a fair amount of time. I, I was trained in the performing arts and directing and theater um, and so on, and a, and a love of of classical arts and you know, uh, visual arts. But so for me, having written a fair number of papers in my formative years on art and the nature of it, but also having a, such a negative view of religion. Um, and its impact on society and behavior. So yeah, I, I, when I hear this, I love the question. I f sort of feel immediately that you're looking at art almost akin to a human, I don't know where I want to go with this, like a human identity that helps us deal with existential anxiety, like which, which bridges to religion for me, right? You're, you're, I think, fusing art a little bit more with like a religious, I don't know, with a religious standpoint for me, where I get sort of tangled up here and where I, I may dis, I don't know if it's quite disagreeing with you, but it's art to me is nothing more than going to have to quote good old Shakespeare here, but putting the, the, the mirror up to nature, right? It is to see a representation of what we as humans experience wrestle with day to day and in just framing it by taking it out of our head and and, and making it something we can all collectively observe therefore sparking debate about it exploration of it um i I've never had this thought I don't think before but like I wouldn't be surprised if theater was some sort of precursor to psychology in some way. Now I want to follow that up because <laughs> I feel like there are definitely books on this. There I'm like, there's gotta be like, I just, I'm curious um, because right. It's you're observing and you're observing yourself. If you are, you know, it, you're putting things up on stage to be, to be reflected, right. The, the mirror of nature. Um, so in that, I feel like you treasure and explore what we don't understand and science then I don't know, for me, I guess, doesn't explain it away, but it, they feed off of each other. There's this, this celebration of what it means to be human, what we don't know and what we struggle with, but then science is how we actually pursue it. So for me, anyway, I guess that's the difference. I feel like they do live hand in hand because I think they're feeding off of each other. I don't think one is fighting against the other. Like I would disagree with Poe where he's like, science kills it. I don't know. Maybe that's just my nature. I don't, I don't see that as killed. I like that it's explained because for me, I think there's always the next level. If we're being good old Giordano, my bud Giordano, again, you find the center of one 
system, that system itself is connected to another system. It's connected to something else. So I, I don't know that yeah. we're ever going to suddenly be like, we've yeah. killed all of curiosity. I don't right. know. Am I rambling? I'm probably rambling. No, you're not. I, I actually, I want you and I are unsurprisingly completely aligned on this. I think um, like I wanted to ask the question because I do think it still rages. And I do think there are people who think, you know, it's one or the other that's more important. Art's not giving us enough. You know, we need to be funding science. It's going to save more lives, right? Uh, would be like an argument from one side. The other side would be very much like you said, without art, I mean, are we even human? So I 100% agree with you. I may have yeah. misled you a little bit when I was talking about the religion piece, which I was only talking about because you were bringing up religion and science. Right, so no, I, okay. Yeah, I, yeah, I yeah. think I spun off. I, I don't think art is, is necessary. I think it can be a stairway to the divine, to touching the divine. But, you know, uh, my religious views are, are very similar to yours. So it's not yeah. like I'm- Because I do that think- That's what it's for. Yeah. I think it is for exactly what you said. It's a way to put out there what's going on inside. It's a way to reflect ourselves. It's a way to have society reflect and, and move on in new ways. Yeah, absolutely. And I do think what you were describing that the negative, like I, I, I think religion and science, yeah, for sure, are are diametrically opposed because that brings in an attack on a comfort and an identity that either a human being or a society has locked in place to deal with existential anxiety. I don't want to like fly into Sartre and bad faith or anything. Maybe that hopefully that comes up in one of our random nouns where we get to like go down that rabbit hole. But like, you know what I mean? Like that's the only th thing that when that gets locked in, that that is harder to unlock and overturn than an established theory. Like what I love about Tico's part of this story was although he felt very strongly clearly that he disagreed with Copernicus, he was thoughtful in it. And it wasn't just because his sense of self rided on his theory. Now, maybe there's some of that in a professional sort of astronomer circle. You know, you put your heart into something, you kind of want it to be right. But I love that he overturned it and that his own student was Kepler, who aligned with Copernicus. Like that's, I just, I respect the scientific community so much in that because I just feel like in religious circles, you'd never see that. Right. No, I agree. You know what I mean? You and wouldn't I, so see that I attack this, and freedom yeah. to overturn. I know I'm preaching to the right. choir here, literally. No, <laughs> it's good. Not literally. I don't a lot know of puns mean. today. A lot of puns. I know. Um, Wait, oh, it, sorry, go on. You, no. you, there's definitely one of my questions that absolutely plays into one of yours, but hit it. Oh, well, actually, let's get to your, I was just going to say, I, I did inadvertently take us down a whole other rabbit hole by tying it back into religion, which had nothing to do with my original question. But I'm glad I did because it brought us to this conversation. But I just thought of something while you were talking that I originally, surprisingly, had not thought about as kind of a wrap up to my big question before, which is one of, you know, the greatest physicists of our time, who I already mentioned, Carl Sagan, who, who did so much to to bring physics to all of us, to every man, to the non-physicist, right? Through his show Cosmos and who truly believed in teaching in that way. Um, he also led the Voyager project and Mark knows I might get a little cheery here. So when Voyager was launched containing all sorts of things relating to the human race, the idea being that it's launched into outer space so that if 
there is life out there and someone finds it, they have, you know, there's a recording of a mother talking to a baby. Um, there's just all these things, language, um, and a lot of it is art. And so Carl Sagan, one of our greatest physicists, realized this, that what's important, I don't remember exactly if it's a box sonata or, you know, there's a piece of classical music, there's examples of music from around the world, there's all of Shakespeare's works or something like that. Please do not fact check me on exactly what's on there, but but it is. Or do, actually. <laughs> or do and let us know. Right? Yes, and let us know. For um, sure. But that to me is so beautiful. That is the perfect combo of science and art because a man who dedicated his life to understanding more about our universe also yeah. connected with the idea that art is what makes us so special and unique and should be some one of the first things that we should share um, were we to find life somewhere else in the universe. Oh, I have goosebumps. Yes. Oh, I'm mm -hmm. so glad you brought that up. <laughs> Um, All right, let's go. That's so, perfect. Carl Sagan into your big question, I think. Yeah, so I'm trying to remember this, something you had said around the interplay of art and science. Oh, you know what it was? I think it was to perhaps to understand some things within science, you need to think outside the box. Do you need to have an artist's imagination or spirit to, to think? Um, think differently. This, now that I say that out loud, this question is sort of the opposite of that. And it doesn't mean to be disagreeing with you, but I, I just think it's funny that because when I went through the history of heliocentric versus geocentric and how much through church circles or not, there, there was Tico was like a good example of how to overturn that and be thoughtful and, and just sort of flow with the best knowledge and the, and the best theories that are backed up. But so many of the, the um, facts and, and, and background that I ran into was really just this sort of inertia. <laughs> Sorry, a little Newton. Um, but you know what I mean? Like <laughs> of, of, of thought that you really need to overturn because people, you know, get um, subjective about things rather than objective. And so one of the questions I, I probably, I know we're supposed to maybe just have one big question. I have like three, but one of them is, can we ever truly create and institute a purely objective scientific method or would that rely on AI being programmed as such? Ah. But, even a, but even AI is programmed by humans. Right. Okay. I Okay. This is like a whole other episode, which I think was your, when we bought this format through, you were like, this could lead to other episodes. But I, I, I didn't, I'm not even going to let you answer it. I'm so horrible. I apologize, but I'm so excited. No, that this you is why I this question. So I have long felt that, and this is not some unique thought on my part. Um, the problem, huge believer in science here, I used to have like a mask that said science will win, right? So, I mean, a huge believer in science. But the problem for me with the scientific method has always been that the scientific method, method is developed by human beings. Developed by human beings who don't understand everything there is to understand about science, about how the universe works, about all the forces around us. Dark matter? We don't know. Oh, it's there. It's like more of it. Suddenly, what? We don't know. So it has to be inherently flawed. That being said, I think it's the best. It, it, it's the best we have right now. It should be used. It shouldn't be doubted. But 
Should it probably evolve over time as we learn more? Yeah, absolutely. Like all things, like when you have an opinion on one thing and then you learn more stuff and you go, you know what? I was wrong (laughs) or I need to tweak it. It's that sort of thing. So I do think that the scientific method is inherently flawed, although very, very solid in a lot of ways. And then when you bring it into AI, like you said, I think you like answered the question. We're programming the AI. So at least initially, those same biases are going to be inherent there until the robots take over the world. I'm just kidding. Sort of. I don't know. Am I? No, but no, until I'm they you develop their own I'll let you finish your thought. Then but yes, yes. who knows where they're going to go? Yep. But they've already been initially <laughs> programmed by us. So they may go down the same path that we would have gone down anyway, or they just are, have so much more um, processing power at their... <laughs> fingertips that uh, if they have fingertips that that maybe maybe it goes uh, another way but i think too much bias is built in but i honestly don't know so what were you thinking about well here's it? exactly what i wrestled with and this is where i feel sort of embarrassed like i have this fear that someone might stumble across our our little podcast and i i hope they do but i'm fearful that they listen to us and if they've researched ai i really really i, I do want to pause allison and i i know are on the same page with this audience if you know of these topics, if you have heard us say something, I will not be embarrassed. I just said I was, but I will try not to be embarrassed. I will actually relish the opportunity to be corrected um, by folks who just have studied these things and, and know more. The spirit of this whole show is for Allison and I to celebrate and to be more curious and to realize things we we didn't know before, or we may have misassociated, um, et cetera, et cetera. So if you've you know, know of these things and we've said something that has really pissed you off or has really you just like your head's exploding with how off base it is for some reason. We actually really, really want you to reach out. Um, it could be, it could be anything. We might prompt you to send a, a, an audio recording and you might be on the show. We might, hell, we might have people come be on the show as a follow-up to a topic months later, who knows? Um, so first I just want the audience to know that. Right. Um, Second, yeah, with this whole concept, why I'm slightly embarrassed is because I realize we're not the first ones like in popular culture. You know, I feel like we were just dancing around Terminator a second ago, right? Like this, the whole, the computer to take over the world, Skynet, all that. Um, This, I think this, this concept of is a stone cold robotic logic by and large, the best good, or does it lead to horrific tragedy? It has been explored in many ways in in such popular things as um, Ultron, the character in Marvels. He is an this. He is exactly what we're describing, which is slightly embarrassing because I'm like it's almost like movies have educated me, but it's not quite what I mean. But you know what I mean? He, that is the question inherent. He is an AI who realizes that is the most logical thing that the human race is so screwed that it should just not exist anymore. So what I, I guess what I mean here is I had this like follow-up question. Can AI ever erase the human subjectivity it was coded with um, human sort of bad faith or if I, oh my God, it's the second time I've mentioned bad faith. Um, but then I have this big and bold thing of should it? Right, because in so many of these explorations of thought in films and other things, is the saving grace that educates the human the 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 robot is if they are slightly human enough that they respect life, that 
that logic isn't always the completely the right way. Where I get tangled around this even more is that is movies. And so that is to like pull the heartstrings and make it feel right. But is there a way to, to show maybe, maybe pure logic really absolutely is the right way? Like, I just don't know. And so that's where I have these questions of like, does human emotion always save us from atrocities? Is that really a thing? Or is that films teaching us that that's like the end of the story we're used to telling? No, I think that's a great, a great, great, great point because we've all seen so many of those movies and, you know, look, a movie needs to pull at our heartstrings, right? I mean, there is a formula to some degree. Um, but I think your Ultron, although I laughed and smirked when you brought that up as an example, is a perfect example because that is pure logic of him saying, well, I'm here to protect the human race to make sure, like the only way to do it is eliminate them because they are absolutely right and i don't think like, i'm getting that wrong yeah no he tries to no. wipe everything yeah yeah everything out like, because he's like you guys are destroying yourself it, you know everything and, 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 and you're evil world. and you're doing all this stuff and you're never going to change so i have to start over i have to build like a new a new race. right that's and that's uh, held so, up as the 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 logic ai solution like yeah yeah but i think um i i think there's no answer to your question and i think right. it's such an incredibly incredibly um, fascinating one. And it, oh, it made me just think of one thing you may have seen in the news. Um, many of you in the past few months, I believe there was an article, uh, one of the lead AI engineers at Google, uh, made a statement and said, I think our AI has achieved actual independent consciousness. And everyone at Google was like, ah, no, it did not just stop it. Like you're spending too much time with it. You don't. And he was like, well, let me give you some examples of how, right. So this is a trained engineer. Obviously he's leading this project, was leading this project. He is no longer, um, and gave these sort of examples. Now, I don't know what the, I don't know if he just kind of went off the deep end there because he's so, so, so deep in it, which I think would be very easy to do. Or if he has a point and he's being hushed up, which does sound like a movie plot. Uh, but that is the interesting thing. We've all seen, you know, before 2020, we all saw numerous movies, TV shows, read numerous books about a contagion, a plague, a spread, what that would be like for the human race. And we were like, yeah, sci-fi, whatever, wouldn't happen that way. And then here came COVID. Although none of us expected that like people would just refuse to wear masks get vaccinated like that wasn't built into any of the movies but we that's probably should have but yeah so so the fact that we all watched these movies and went well it's all in all the movies so it couldn't possibly happen that way well maybe it could with ai so that's a very long way of saying i don't know the answer to your question oh i didn't know the answer to yours either like it's yeah this is what the point is i love these <laughs> i love this section yeah um nice i'm trying to think in in Interest of time, dear audience. Uh, I have some other questions, but maybe I'll post them in the show notes. Just other riffs on secular versus religious warring factions, which we have touched on already, to be honest. Really? Um, and uh, oh, I'm, I'm, I won't ask the question, but just an observation that I, I took away from this was if Pythagoras posited that the world was round for certain reasons, and then 1492 rolls around and we're still trying to like most people don't buy it. It just feels like the how tenuous the 
propagation and momentum of human knowledge is. Now, I think most of us now would say an amazing amount, obviously things have changed. Uh, the printing press, the, the, the basis of knowledge, et cetera, et cetera. But it, it got me f- thinking ahead to, again, disaster scenarios we see in films, but I think there's a reason why these things come up in directors and, and writers' minds, is how are we doing enough that if things really cataclysmically went off the rails right now, how far would human society be taken back? All the research I just did was online. It, it required electricity. It required the internet. Um, I know we have obviously libraries, but to what extent would human nature, like if it was all obliterated, like uh, everything other than printed things tomorrow, just curious how far, how much progress would be lost? You know what I mean? Because if I suddenly was stranded, you, you know, me and Allison live in New York city, shit really went down in the world and we are stuck somewhere in upstate New York and society falls apart. I don't know how, I, I barely know first aid, much less. I overtake a, took a week long survival course in the woods. So You know what I mean? Like, I know I'm going like a little crazy with that, like thought, but I, I guess it's just that big question of, are, if I see that it's so easy for the world to have a true spherical understanding from Pythagoras, but then we're proving it still right. thousands of years later. Well, like. Yeah, thousands of years later. Um, I don't know. That just scares me. So I just want to make sure, like, even though we pride ourselves in our modern society, are we safe from that? Yeah, I don't think we can. Yeah, and I, I know we have like a time constraint. But I will just say quickly, I love that that thinking too. That is why some of the best sci-fi, I think, shows and and um, and books and movies again do actually focus on what does it look like to rebuild society. So instead of just being the yes. great disaster or the zombie chase or whatever and the walking dead again okay okay, again we could do a whole episode on this with people calling in because people have very strong feelings about the walking dead and i will say (laughs) i am still watching it it's almost over right we have one more like the last part of the last season coming up i don't know when soon um and it really 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 had gone downhill my opinion i'm sure a lot of you have other opinions that you can write in and tell me i'm wrong but one of the things i loved about it in the beginning is that it did yeah there were plenty of zombies and all that but it did start to focus on what would you do how would you live and then once you got somewhere that was safe how would you rebuild society you don't even understand how do you build a water wheel i mean just things like that and they don't have access to yeah. it and they don't have access to libraries because they're all full of zombies so they don't even have that and that to <laughs> me is the most interesting part of a lot of the disaster um movies that we end up seeing how people envision society rebuilding there you have it folks our true you, you thought we were kidding when we started this episode saying we sometimes go down a rabbit hole we're now talking about the walking dead and the preservation of human knowledge in general we started with orbit but there you go <laughs> it's really incredible <laughs> um and hope i really have this fear i'm just gonna be very honest audience that i hope you're not listening being like these guys are full of themselves we really i think i want to make it clear I'm acknowledging that I enjoy learning things and I enjoy trying to piece things together, but gosh, I feel very a swim in a, a swim. Is that what I mean? A, a drift. There we go. A drift. That's better. Swimming At and sea. a drift. Um, yeah. A swim. <laughs> uh, in, uh, in, a massive Dear amount, Mark. In, a, in a massive amount of ignorance. Yeah. My ignorance, uh, my own ignorance, not other people's ignorance. 
No, I want to fully agree with that. Uh, Mark already said this. I think it bears repeating. Well, actually, I think, uh, Mark, it's probably time. This is a really good way to segue into the part we wanted to do to wrap up, which was talk about what this week was like. This was right. our first episode. And so what Mark just said, I, I would say, first of all, it was incredibly fun. And I thought a week, seven days would be more than enough time. It is not because no. you scratch the surface and then you're like, uh, well, now I have to learn more about that. And then you scratch that surface and y- you could go forever, right? That rabbit hole never ends. Comes out all the way on the other side of the world. It's good science there. Um, so, <laughs> so that that is fascinating. And um, what bears repeating is that there is so much. This just reminded me how much I don't know. Uh, like Mark, I have incredibly broad interests, um, but I know a little about a lot of stuff. I don't know a lot about any one thing. And this just reinforced for me, you know, I got very excited when I decided on my direction and then it ended up being Edgar Allan Poe related. I mean, it was just like over the moon on that. And, um, (laughs) but then like realized like I couldn't remember what years he was even writing and, you know, just like, there's just so much. So if you are a literature professor listening to this, you're thinking, ah, she got like the whole point of something or other wrong. Um, I would love to know that. I do not. Please, I couldn't remember the name of the poem. I called it Nevermore, and it's The Raven. And I was like, the I remember Raven. Nevermore. I was like, yeah, I do remember that it's The Raven, everybody. <laughs> if you're still listening after I couldn't remember <laughs> an hour ago. Yeah, that's amazing. So, and I, I'm an avid podcast, list, podcast listener myself, and I, I know for sure I'll sometimes hear people mention something and they won't give all the context about something I know about. And I'll be like, well, actually, <laughs> history of Ireland, you know, you've left out this very important part. Like, okay. And then I have to rein myself in. Uh, but please, please, please share with us when you have. Those yes, thoughts. you don't it's have to rein yourselves in, dear audience. Exactly. I rein myself in on those podcasts. We do not want you reining yourselves in. So, um, so to sum up, I had a great week doing this. I wish we had more time. At the same time, if we had more time, we'd never stop. I think so. Um, so it made a lot of sense. Um, to go in this direction. And I could not be happier that we're, that we're starting this. So what about you, Mark? How was it for you? I mean, a lot of the same, uh, had an absolute blast, loved that putting in the time. I'll be honest. There were moments where it felt because we put this, you know, we gave ourselves homework, just, I had that like little childish reaction of like, Oh God, I have to do my homework just for like a second. But then once I did it, so much joy coming out of like unstructured, like although it was homework, so to speak, this is us doing it out of a passion and love for it, right? So really, I experienced the opposite of homework. It was it was like um, a very fun, untethered, like no set path delving into what I what I wanted to to to, to find. And to your point, is scratching the surface. I feel like, I'm, you know, I'm trying not to be embarrassed by how much I didn't cover, but of course we can't cover. I mean, it's, it's inhumanly, it's not possible, right. To, to cover something in a, in a short podcast with the depth that we, we might want. Um, I want to give a huge shout out and, and a reminder to folks who, who potentially lose sight of it as I did. I did so much of my research with my New York public library card number and accessing EBSCO and massive amounts of like online databases that you might forget folks that you have uh, a lot of free access to through your public library. Um, At least the New York public library has that. Uh, I would assume many do around the globe. So that was 
I had fun even in just like, not just what I learned, but how I was learning it and realizing, oh, cool. I could just go search on any topic and find these amazing sources from any time period. I mean, it's really rich resources that, um, that the library offers. So that was cool. Um, what else? What else? Um, while you're thinking, I'll add, I also used my library card. Um, I'm a huge uh, supporter um, of libraries and fan of libraries. So I'm really glad you called that out, Mark, um, for folks who maybe just haven't thought about a library in a while. Um, you know, get your library card wherever you are, support your local libraries. Uh, the other thing, I wouldn't have thought of this before you mentioned it, um, another research, research tool I think all of us use in our daily lives now is Wikipedia, right? So wikipedia.org. Wikipedia Wikipedia.org is um, ad-free. It is run um, as a not-for-profit. Um, you, if you are an ad, use it often, you'll sometimes see something pop up that asks you to donate. Uh, that is one I always donate to because I think I use this site at least once a day. I can donate a small amount of money. You know, every sort of dollar counts for them. Um, so if that is something that you use, um, I would urge you to consider helping to keep that an open source of information. It's a source of information people all over the world, if they have internet access, who might not have access to libraries, have access to. So I think it's an important um, basis of knowledge um, to keep people connected. All right, folks, I think we are going to wrap the show up with our gut reaction, which is us getting our next random noun for next week's episode. So All with right. that, I think, Allison, I will turn it over to you. All right, so Mark generated last time and I got to Oh wait, first wait, reaction. sorry, first I'm taking us, taking us off track. Rewind. Well, the only thing we didn't do for wrapping up this episode was checking in with our initial gut reaction on this word. So Allison, you were a 7.5. How are you feeling uh, on a scale of one to 10? I actually, so as you'll recall, I said 7.5. I wanted to give it higher because of science and orbit. And I was all excited and I thought I better rein it in. Um, I'm actually going to go with like a 10 because, and the reason I'm going that way is because not only all the cool science stuff, which I'm so happy you um, followed up on, then there's just so much more. I realized that I'm so interested in that was connected to this word. And I had so much fun doing all this research and going down like kind of a more cultural path with it. So I got to say it went from a 7.5 to a 10 for me. And I think you were at a seven initially. I was at a seven and I danced around the idea of going to a 10 as well. It did increase for me. I think I'm going to be a little bit more conservative than you. <laughs> I'm never conservative people ever. Um, but I will be in this instance and go with like a nine, just because, I don't know. I don't know what a 10 is gonna look like. Is that even gonna be possible? Excuse me. But um, yeah, I think a nine, similar to you, it, it, it really came through on my expectations. And for me, it just, like I said, I, I actually got a little emotional at random points, just being like the nature of this long story that starts from ancient peoples saying, the pattern of that shinier object, this, this planet is different. And that they dig at that. You pull at that thread for thousands of years. Like that's just amazing to me. So yes, nine. <laughs> all right. We, we're going to have to chart this over time and then be able to look at our statistics. Oh, I'm um, all about that. I will start a spreadsheet because I am mad data geek that way. Um, okay. So we're going to take turns every week 
generating the words. So we'll take turns having first reaction. And Mark was kind yes. enough to give me first reaction next week. So I have the random word generator. Good. As Mark has mentioned, it is just randomwordgenerator.com. So, you know, if you want to play this game with your friends at home, uh, you can do that as well. We just have it set to nouns um, because we had to limit it in some way. So are you ready, Mark? Yes. Give us the homework that isn't homework. I don't think of it as homework, but it's give us our assignment. The fun work. It is. Construction. Construction. <laughs> I think you're, you're... Sorry, I'm like, hmm, that's big. Yeah, my head's already like flooding with ideas and images and so on. Ooh. Ha! I'm wondering, this is going to be fascinating to see. All right, anyway, right? Our gut reaction. Sorry, before I start going off. Um, uh, go ahead, Allison, go ahead. No, you get the first Oh, is thing. it me? Oh, okay. I'm thinking, uh, I hate using the same number, but it really comes in at a seven for me again. I'll push myself if I keep coming in at seven. I swear I'm not going to be boring that way. But it is like, a. am excited by it but I'm not sure of some things. So seven. Um, okay. I think I, it's so big. I think that's the first thing you said too, hilariously. Uh, it, it's so big and broad, which I think means there's going to be a lot in there, but I have to say just my gut, my initial is like, eh. Uh, so I'm going to give it a five. Like it's just not like peaking any particular excitement in me, even though I recognize there's probably a lot of avenues to go down. Right. <laughs> We're seven and we're five. Um, Mark, why don't I turn it over to you to wrap this yes. up? Good. Well, just to, to send us off, everybody, I want to thank you uh, for tuning in to the Renowned Podcast. Uh, if you enjoy the show, please follow and subscribe. Um, whatever platform you're on or listening to, you should be able to subscribe and actually follow the show. Also, if your platform gives you the opportunity to rate us, usually with stars and a comment, we would absolutely love it if you gave us a good rating and helped us establish our fledgling podcast at this point. That would be wonderful. Also, please visit us at renownedpodcast.com. There you can do a bunch of things. You can find ways to just listen or watch from there. Uh, you can also uh, find a blog where we'll post additional thoughts and content, or you can subscribe to get updates right into your inbox uh, whenever we publish something there, which will largely be related recaps to the shows, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and that's it. So please tune in next week for our new word construction. And thank you. You are all renowned in my book, dear audience. Ooh, it's so cheesy, but I had to say it. Uh, we will see you. <laughs> We'll see you next time. Bye, everyone. Bye-bye.